Hip hop, hip hop, shit. Hip hop, hip hop, bars is back. Hip hop, Santa hip, and hop, oh god, what's up with you? I done watched the niggas do interview after interview. They not culture vultures, the culture something they been into. So if you never gave them a view, I recommend you do. Cause when they question guests, they message is not subliminal. It don't matter if you a rookie or at your pinnacle. They gon' touch on stuff that you did and what you finna do. It's uncensored too. Yo, they never had a goofy show. But I saw some boys on they show acting goofy though. Well, if you think they L stupid though, you would get exposed like the hoes on OnlyFans letting coochie show. They introduced the show when I sent this to Sam. Asked, oh God, that nigga said, oh God, you the man, Cass. I spit white like a clan mask. And I'm a hustler, I could stand out on the beach and sell sandbags. Some things can last, but this ain't just a podcast. This is Sam Ant and Oak Podcast. Hip hop uncensored is the vibe, so subscribe. Hip hop uncensored is the vibe, so subscribe. Oh God, driving Sam and riding passenger side. And you heard it out the mouth of the greatest rapper alive. Hip hop uncensored is the vibe, so subscribe. Hip hop uncensored is the vibe, so subscribe. Oh God, driving Sam and riding passenger side. And you heard it out the mouth of the greatest rapper alive. Welcome to another special episode of the Hip Hop Uncensored. Uncensored Podcast. I'm your brother, old guy from Hip Hop News Uncensored. Sitting across from me is my co-host. What up, what up, y'all? It's your man, Sam. And viral Hip Hop News. Like my cousin said, man, you in the building today for a very special episode of the Hip Hop Uncensored Podcast. We got a special guest in the building, CEO of Street TV and the host of the Street TV Podcast, Alex Alonzo's on the podcast. How you doing today, Mr. Alonzo? Oh, man, everything's good, man. No complaints over here. Dope, man. Appreciate having you on today, man, on this podcast on this Thursday evening. Like we said before we started, yeah. you are, is it safe to say that you are a gang historian? You got a, a degree from um, USC or a PhD, if I'm not mistaken, from uh, from USC. You've been doing this for a very long time. I think you do it better than most people. Is it safe to say that you're a historian in the gang culture and the gang game, so to speak? Well, uh, what I would say is I'm a Los Angeles historian uh, at heart. and out of studying Los Angeles, there's really no way you could study Los Angeles and not touch on gangs. And gangs kind of became like a little specialty, uh, you know, in terms of studying the history of Los Angeles. So I just consider myself a L.A. historian more than just a gang historian. Now, you're from the you're from New York. You're from the Bronx, right? Yes, sir. I was born in the boogie down. Word up. So how did you go from the Bronx and, and how did the Bronx mold you into going out west and diving into that culture? Well, um, man, that's a long story, man. But it's all about like family dysfunction and family divorce and separation. And, you know, my parents uh, were going through it and and they were having a custody battle over me. And my father decided that in order for him to keep custody of me, he had to get as far away from New York as he could. And that's how I ended up in California, because it's one of the furthest places you can get from from New York. And, um, I made a home for myself here. You know, I came to Los Angeles like 11 years old, mm. uh, but you know, my, my brothers, I had two brothers and two sisters that lived in, in New York. Well, my older brother had, uh, went to the military, but I had, um, two younger sisters and a younger brother and my mother, of course. So I always stayed in contact with New York. And the crazy thing is, about 10 years after my father had brought me out here to Los Angeles, now I'm in college. He decides that he wants to move back to New York. So oh, he, ended, he ended up just leaving me high and dry and went back to New York. And I'm already, you know, a junior in college. And I always said, I'll, I'll go back to New York when I graduate. But it never happened. I never went back permanently, but I've been back to New York. I actually had a little property, a little little property in the Bronx for about five or six years. But, uh, you know, Los Angeles has been my home and I'm considered an Angelino. So, so who was Alex Alonzo, man, if you had to, you know, break that down into a couple of paragraphs? Well, I would say first and foremost, Alex Alonzo is a proud Boricua. Uh, I'm really in touch with, with my roots and where my parents and my family came from. You know, my, my family immigrated into into this country 
So I, I'm, I'm a byproduct of immigration, even though a lot of people consider Puerto Rico as part of the United States. Nonetheless, it's still an immigration. It's a completely different culture. And, and that's what I am first and foremost. And, you know, I consider myself uh, a historian. You know, I study and read on a regular basis. And it's what kind of got me through school and college. I ended up attending a, a university that no one believed that I could get into because it was, a, you know, required a lot of, you know, high marks in order to get in. So uh, I consider myself someone that's well-versed in the subject matter. And, and I always keep myself updated on, you know, the latest literature, the latest books. So I, I consider myself a pretty thorough fellow. What do you think about the recent um, election that we still continue to have going on? I know a lot of people have um, put Biden as the clear cut winner, but uh, Donald Trump has yet to concede. And if anybody knows law, which we've been kind of getting ourselves abrupt on in the Constitution, it's not quite the case quite yet. What do you think about what's going on with the current election? Donald Trump fighting the votes, Joe Biden winning and, and just the whole ordeal that we've seen the last couple of months. Well, the, the way I look at, at national politics is that everyone gets their turn. We live in a two-party system. So regardless of how many people vote, regardless of, of how, how much we encourage people to vote, it, it always goes back and forth. Democrats, Republicans, Democrats, Republicans. Uh, I feel like Biden is actually the clear winner in this case because he, he's got the vote in Michigan. He's got the vote in Wisconsin. Uh, he's won Pennsylvania. He's he's leading in Georgia. He already nailed Arizona and Nevada. So the only way that that Trump could even win this is by flipping like three states, which I don't see any courts doing. It's not like in 2000 when when Gore and Bush went at it. It was over one state and that one state divided those two candidates by like 500 votes. Uh, every single state that Biden is leading in is at least uh, several thousand. So it's just a matter of time. But uh, I'm pretty convinced and confident that Biden won this election. And you know what? I think Trump could come back in 2024 yeah. and, and possibly win because he lost. But he lost a narrow he, he lost a narrow election. You know, he almost won Pennsylvania. He almost won Nevada. He almost won um, Wisconsin. So uh, I think in four years, if his health, if his health is good, uh, he could run again because, you know, Biden's going to make several mistakes that he'll be able to capitalize off of. And considering he won a narrow election, he probably could win again in four years. Definitely. Now, on your list and your resume, which is a long resume, you have, you know, gang expert. On your resume, um, I'm not sure if you got a chance to gleam and see the King Von shooting um, out in um, Atlanta, Georgia. He's from Chicago. Um, what do you think about that? The whole situation. Uh, you know, I I didn't get a chance to really look at what happened. You're talking about the young rapper that lost his life. Yes, out in Atlanta. Yeah, actually, there was there's two rappers that lost their lives in the last yeah. like week or so. Yeah, yes, out of Dallas as well. Mo three. Yeah, you know, it, it's just unfortunate that. Uh, a lot of people that, especially in the last decade that rap, uh, you know, they come from out of these environments. They come from, you know, an aggressive upbringing. And I think uh, the one that you're talking about, it, it's on camera where the young the brother was was squabbling with another brother. And unfortunately, someone decided to pull out a pistol and start, you know, busting in the crowd and and killed him. And, you know, that's where we come from. You know, that could have been me in a situation. If somebody, you know, confronts me out in public, you know, I'm, I, I might end up in a, in a physical fight, you know, because that's just the way I was bred, you know. And I'm actually trying to teach my sons right now that you got to know when to walk away from a conflict because you don't know if that guy has a knife or a gun is going to end your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's something that I wasn't raised with. I was raised, you know, defend yourself, fight back you know, uh, beat up as many people as you can, but there wasn't as many people pulling out guns in the, in the seventies and early eighties. But then when you get to the mid to late eighties, uh, everyone's pulling out guns. So yeah, it's unfortunate that this brother lost his life, man. And that should be a lesson to a lot of other people. You got to know how to pick your battles and you got to know how to walk away from a confrontation because 
you could lose your life. When you talk about gang and hip hop, it, it goes almost hand in hand today. And me and Ogad have had a couple discussions this week in particular about is there a death wish when it comes to hip hop? Because a lot of these young artists come from gang cultures and bring a lot of that life early on into the game. And we see a lot of unfortunate incidents. This isn't the first and this won't be the last that we've seen this year. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. hopefully it's the last that we've seen the last couple, but it won't be the last in general. What do you think about the um the the um the the difference between the, the gang culture and coming into hip hop and how the two inter- intertwine? Well, if if you're going to come into this music business with a gang label, you really got to be careful about how you navigate and how you move. And you know, we we have some good examples of some brothers that are still with us today and that made ex- amazing decisions about their career and and how they would move. Like, for example, Ice Cube, you know, Ice Cube is never going to get caught up in a situation that is going to cost him his life. Uh, even Snoop Dogg was, is very smart and intelligent and the way he moves around, uh, you know, because, you know, Snoop became Snoop Dogg. He ended up buying a house out of Long Beach. He ended up raising his kids in another community. Uh, he, he separated himself. But at the same time, he maintained a, a little bit of that that gangster image and you just got to know how to move and you got to know how to navigate in this space. And even as like myself, I'm not a rapper, but I interface with gang members and gangsters all the time. And, and I figured out there's certain ways I got to move when I'm doing an interview, when I'm going to a particular location, a certain neighborhood, Mm -hmm. uh, I got to figure out certain things ahead of time. I got to know who's going to be there. I got to know what's the temperature of this neighborhood and if it's a, if it's if it's not the right time, I'll pass up on the interview and we could do it another time because, you know, I got three kids at home and and that's the way these rappers got to start thinking. You, they got to start thinking, should I go to this event? And if I do go to this event, should I take somebody with me? And if there is some conflict at this event, do I engage it or do I walk out the back door and, and go home? So. You know, it's always going to be with us. There's always going to be guys from the streets coming into the music business, but they got to be smart at how they navigate. You know, we lost Pop Smoke. Uh, what was that? Did we lose Pop Smoke early this year or late last year? That nah, was this year. Mm-hmm. That was this year, huh? Yeah. You know, and, and and you look at all these examples, there are things they could have done, even including Nipsey Hussle. There mm-hmm. are things they could have done differently, and they would have still been here today. Talk about Nipsey Hussle. I've seen your commentary a little bit when, in regards to the Eric Holder, um, the trial with him a couple months ago. What do you what do you think about that whole ordeal? And we've had conversations often about what's going to happen in that. The camera coverage doesn't look clear. We all know how murder convictions have to be proven without a shadow of a doubt. This is a very high profile case. What's your thoughts overall on the case, and what do you see happening overall? Uh, well, the commentary I gave was about the preliminary hearing. The trial has hasn't been set yet. So my whole thing is I work in the courts also. Uh, I work with defense attorneys as a consultant on cases uh, all the time. COVID has slowed it down, but I'm always giving the defendant the benefit of the doubt. Always. It doesn't matter Uh, because I understand how prosecutors and district attorneys, they will throw everything at you and it becomes an unlevel, unlevel playing field when you're getting ready for trial and you got one defense attorney and and they got the resources of the whole Los Angeles County District Attorney's office. So I I really don't don't know what to think of the case at this point. Uh I know that the grand jury testimony came out and it looks pretty it doesn't look too good, but you know every case is defendable. Uh every case has the potential of ending up in a not guilty verdict. So I really don't know what the evidence is going to be when they go to trial. Even at the, if, if you looked at my my commentary on that last hearing, the defense attorney for Eric Holder didn't even have all the discovery from the prosecutor. So I don't know what the evidence is going to be against him. I don't know what they're going to present in Judge Perry's court. But mm-hmm. once once that is done, then, you know, we'll be able to make a better assessment of guilt or innocence in that case. Can you, can you do us a, a quick favor? I hate to interrupt the interview, but um, your, your uh, visual is coming in a little blurry. Could you drop out or come right back in? It could then, be the light. Oh, no, it's like it's like fuzzy. It's not it's not your lighting. It's just coming in fuzzy, like the connection. Sometimes we'll fix it if you drop out and come back in. 
because we can barely see your face. Oh, you mean like, you want me to cancel out and then log back in? Yeah, just real quick. Yeah. Okay, so just uh, leave the studio. Yep, and you come. Yep, right back in after that. Hopefully that'll fix it. Yeah, I think so. Good call on that, man. Absolutely, man. You're in the building of the podcast right now. We're going to get Alex Alonzo back in the building for a great conversation right now. We're about to get a history lesson, man, to talk about some more great things. On the podcast, you already know what to do, man. Hit that like button. Tell a friend to tell a friend to get on this goddamn wave of this podcast. We should have Alex Alonzo back momentarily. Yeah, man. Legal expert, gang expert, filmmaker. You know, this guy, you know, uh, does a lot of podcasts. So yeah. definitely can't wait to continue to pick his brain, man. If you're enjoying the podcast today, man, like Sam man said, share this with somebody. You know what I mean? Copy the link, share it on Facebook, text it to a friend, tell them to check out the Hip Hop Uncensored podcast. Man, we give you that nonstop hip hop news and interviews. We do it all over here. So we definitely appreciate all the listeners, man. You already know while we wait real quick, shout out to the co-champ Pee Wee. Little League football team, Egg Harbor Township Youth yeah. Organization, and the Hamilton Knights. Teams that Ogot and I both uh, coach for. Very proud of them young boys, even though we would like to settle it on the field. Hey, man, at least the best two teams are getting recognized. Salute to them young brothers. Yeah, no doubt, man. Definitely. Yes, so, get Alex Alonzo back in the building soon enough. We got some good – man, this is going to be a dope-ass interview, man. Yeah, wait. man. I hated to stop it right there, but it was just – that it was looking way too fuzzy. Nah, it was a good call, Ogot. We tried to make it through, and hopefully it worked itself out, but – I think that was a good call, man. He should be back momentarily. Up oh, there, you go. Yeah, see, and it see. looks good. Here it is. Yeah, that might that might have fixed it. Yeah, there we go. You can hear us. Yes. All right. Cool. So we we, we talk about Nipsey. So I want to kind of um ask my end of the question. What I think about the case. Um, now the driver, the one that allegedly drove Eric Holder to go shoot Nipsey. Do you think it's strange that apparently she or he were given immunity? Um, in that situation, because we the reason I ask is because any other situation, if I would drive him somebody somewhere and he shot somebody, I would get an accessory. If, if he did it to me, it'd be vice versa. So, do you think it's funny or strange that the driver in this case is supposedly getting immunity? No, I don't think it's that unusual because of the amount of cases that I work on. I I got over my shoulder on one of my bookcases back there. I have about thirty cases sitting there. So this happens every once in a while where someone is given immunity so that they could testify and provide enough evidence for the prosecution. So it's not it's not unusual that it happens. Uh, so, no, it, it doesn't surprise me at all because, uh, you know, the prosecution is going to do what they want. They, they need to do to secure a conviction. And they don't seem too concerned about her. Uh, they don't believe that she was a part of the conspiracy. She okay. just happened to be there. So, nah, it happens every once in a while. Now, did you hear anything about um, being from the L.A. area? I've heard this, um, that Eric Holder's family members were getting taken out at this time. Was there any truth to those rumors? I never found any truth to those rumors. I followed up on a couple of those rumors, and I, I looked at the the homicide blog that the L.A. Times has where they list everyone who's been killed in the city and in the county. And I didn't see any pattern of homicides of any persons related to Eric Holder. Um, so I just found that to be an online rumor. Wow. Want to get into um, the gang culture, if you don't mind. What got you into that particular culture? When did you realize this is something that you wanted to kind of base a career around? And when did you realize this was something that you love to do? Oh, man, there's so many steps on my journey to to studying gangs, but I guess it starts really with my family. Um, my, I had an uncle that started a gang in New York called the Puerto Rican Tigers back in the 1950s. And then my father was in a clique called the, the Lucky Knights of Wales, which was also based in the Bronx. So it, it always was around me. And then when I moved to Los Angeles and went to junior high school in the seventh grade, when I was, I guess, uh, 12 years old in the seventh grade here in Los Angeles is really when I started to meet actual gang members. And in those three years at junior high, I met everyone. And I just was always kind of intrigued by the culture. I was always intrigued by, by the streets. And when I got to, to college, I was sitting in a class, taking some class that I didn't even want to take. And this, I overheard someone saying they, they got a gang class here at USC. 
And I went and looked it up. It was Professor Malcolm Klein was teaching a gang class. And I was like, wow, you actually could teach a gang class at the university level? I thought I was going to be stuck studying things that I wasn't even interested in when I got to, to USC. Right. And and when I was I looked over his syllabus and I was like, wow, this is this is really interesting. And then I had found out Malcolm Klein had wrote books on gangs. I went to the library and got all his books from his first 1967 book. And, uh, you know, that's really what made me see that that there was an interest even all the way at the academic level of gang culture. And that's when I really kind of decided to take a full dive. Now, this is pre pre-internet. This is like 1993 when I started to really study this. And then, you know, then, the, then the, my website came out a couple of years later while I was still at the university. So, yeah, man, it was all these little steps along the line, my family. And then at USC, there was another professor named James Diego Vigil in the anthropology department. So we had two professors that were teaching gangs. And these weren't just two regular professors. These were like the top professors in the field. So James Diego Vigil, he studies gangs more on the Latino side. And Malcolm Klein was studying gangs on on the black side. And they were top notch professors in their field. And I, I went I went to both their offices and, and became friends. I ended up working with Malcolm Klein uh, for a couple of years. And then I ended up helping. Uh, reviewing a book for James Diego Vigil. So that's pretty much how I really decided to go full force with it. Absolutely. Could you take us to the inception of these gangs and to the people who don't know, could you let them know at the beginning, like what was the original purpose for these gangs to be started? Um, and we could deal with the Cali gangs first if you want. Well, yeah. Uh, well, most of my research is about the, the gangs here in California. Okay. Uh, and, and we often talk about the Bloods and the Crips. Everyone wants to know about the Bloods and the Crips. But there's a whole history of street gangs in Los Angeles that predates the Bloods and the Crips. And I had wrote about it in my master's thesis back in uh, 1999, I think that was. And Blacks started to migrate to Los Angeles in the 1940s from the South in large numbers for all those World War II jobs. Mm -hmm. So if you was looking for a job, if you was black and you needed a job, you came to California. And when all those families came to California from Texas and Louisiana, mostly, uh, they settled in the ghetto. They settled in the ghetto in Los Angeles. And from out of that ghetto came the first gang. So we're talking about the late 1940s and the early 50s. Mm. And we're, we're talking about the businessmen. We're talking about the Slawsons, the Gladiators, uh, the, the Romans, the Huns. Uh, there's there's at least probably 30 to 40 different black gangs from that generation that were active in the late 40s throughout all of the 1950s until uh, 1965. And at that time, especially the early 50s, they used to fight the white gangs. There was a lot of white gangs in Los Angeles at that time. And the white gangs were more kind of like what we would call today, like white nationalists or white supremacists. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they fought against the blacks. In fact, there was a one there was one gang called the um, the Spook Hunters. They were a white gang. They called them the Spook Hunters. <laughs> and, you know, we, we know what that means. Right. <laughs> but, but check this out. I found the, the, the blacks created a gang called the Devil Hunters. <laughs> back in the 50s. Wow. So there was a lot of like racial conflict going on in, in L.A. at that time. And I pulled a lot of newspaper articles from the black newspaper uh, published by Carlotta Boss. Carlotta Boss owned a black newspaper called the the uh, the California Eagle. And she's actually the first black woman to run for vice president back in 1952. I just want to throw that out there. Oh. But she she had a newspaper where she would track all racial attacks and racial violence. And unfortunately, a lot of white people from the South moved to Los Angeles at the same time. So there is also this Southern white culture brewing in Los Angeles. At the same time, blacks are moving out here for jobs. And, you know, that Southern white culture and then the blacks that moved out here, they clashed. And it really ended up in the, the 1965 Watts riots, you know. 
So that's what caused a lot of those gangs to come together. It was about racial unity, fighting against white supremacy in the city of Los Angeles, and really fighting against what's the, what's the same thing that we've been fighting about and causing all the riots today. It's police brutality. Hmm. Right. Now, did you um you did hitting in plain sight uh, white supremacy and law enforcement? Mm-mm. Was that a, a interview? Oh, no, I might have. No, sorry. Never mind. OK, that didn't apply to you then. All right. Um, Talk about the um how the gangs kind of transitioned from fighting white supremacy to fighting each other. Well, that's just like a natural progression. Uh, I looked at I looked at like um, not necessarily gangs, but groups and organizations historically that were fighting for freedom and independence uh, going all the way back to Europe. And then eventually, after a certain amount of success is attained, those same groups end up fighting each other. They turn on each other. So, you know, you you had a lot of whites in Los Angeles in the 40s and the 50s. And after 1948, there was a legal decision of Supreme Court, Shelley versus Kramer. And what Shelley versus Kramer stated was you couldn't you couldn't rent or sell homes and segregate against African-Americans or any people of color in Los Angeles. Well, this was for the whole the whole country. But Los Angeles whites were strict residentialists or I should say segregationists. And they would use what was called residential segregation, restrictive covenants to keep blacks from purchasing certain properties or to keep blacks from renting homes. So in 1948, that law was stricken and blacks were able to move into any area they wanted. And then that's what was was the beginning of what we call white flight. So then you have white flight from Los Angeles during the 50s. They go out to the suburbs. They go out to the northern part of Los Angeles, which is called the San Fernando Valley. And now you have all these black gangs that were fighting against segregation and white supremacy. You know, they start to to fight against each other. Not to say that they weren't having clashes with each other before. But now you don't even have you don't have to fight against the whites at the park to go swimming anymore. You don't have to fight against the whites, you know, that to go to that burger stand anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now the city is more open to to African-Americans and the local and micro conflict starts to 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 reengage. And that continued until, I'd say, 1965. So you don't have any whites to fight. Now you just start fighting each other over whatever cars, women, the same old stuff that people be fighting over for years. Yeah. Now, what are the Latinos, you know, you being a Puerto Rican brother yourself, um, where do they come into this whole gang picture at what point? Well, they have a very interesting history. Uh, the the Latino gang history in Los Angeles is a little bit older than than the black history. And it's more continuous. What I mean by that is like all the gangs that I was just talking about, the Slossons, the businessmen the Huns, the gladiators. Eventually they all died out in 1965 after the Watts riots, but the Latino gangs, they never died out. They continued throughout all of the turbulence, all of the political turbulence and they maintained. So we have like, like gangs here in LA that Mexican American gangs that are a hundred years old, you know, that are still, that are still active. Uh, Dogtown, for example, which is in the William Mead housing projects near downtown Los Angeles. They've been active since 1895, huh. 1895. So, um, and then a lot of the gangs, you know, they started around the 1910, the 1920s, and they're still active to this day. You know, uh, I did a video on the oldest, the top 10 oldest Latino gangs in, in LA. And, and most of the gangs in that video I did were formed in the 1920s and prior. So, you know, that's a hundred years ago. And they even have a history of conflict with law enforcement in 1943. There, we had the sleepy lagoon incident where a whole bunch of Mexicans were getting beat up by servicemen, uh, mostly uh, sailors, the U S Navy sailors and some U S Marines. They literally got into a fight with them 
And then the Mexicans decided, you know what? We're going to fight all of them. And they went gang banging on the military. And that became known as the Sleepy Lagoon incident. And instead of the Marines and the, and the, the sailors getting in trouble, they arrested a bunch of Mexicans and paraded them all over the media and the news. And you can look up old Los Angeles Times articles. They had all their pictures in the newspaper in 1943. And, uh, you know, it was, it was ridiculous. But, yeah, man, it's, it's a lot of racial history in Los Angeles in those years. How was the um, Latino gangs and black gangs relationships early on? Early on, it was it was much better than they are today. Today, that relationship is influenced by prison politics. But the ones that that existed prior to, let's say, going all the way back to the 50s and 60s, for example, the Slossons that I mentioned, the Slossons and the Florences, the Florences being a predominantly Mexican gang, they all knew each other. They all grew up with each other. They're in the same area. Uh, the Slossons don't exist anymore, but the Florences still do. So when when the Crips and Bloods formed in the early 70s, the Crips in that area and the Florences got along quite well. Um, most Mexican gangs that overlapped with black gangs all got along well. Um, Watts is a known area that had both blacks and Mexicans living in, in large numbers. You had the Grape Street Watts and the Grape Street Watts Crips, and you have Watts Vadio Grape. They were all together. This is we're talking about, um, you know, the the seventies, mm. and the Watts Vadio Grape goes back to the fifties and sixties. But then, in around the early nineties, prison politics comes into play, and the separation starts. I'd say around nineteen ninety two. The separation between uh, Mexicans and black gangs on the street starts. And ever since then, it's never been the same. Now, um, outsiders of, you know, in particular, Bloods and Crips that come from outside of California. We had a couple um, people on the show that gave conflict and answers about how they feel about this. In your opinion, do uh, California, uh, you know, Bloods and Crips accept people from other states, you know, as being an original Cripple blood. You know, that's that's on a, a case by case basis. There are some that are against it. Uh, there are some that that are cool with it. Uh, you know, you know, that's a that's that's a tough situation because you don't know if a particular city that's claiming a crip or blood set from Los Angeles is actually linked to Los Angeles. There's this assumption that it's linked to LA through some kind of way. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a bunch of kids that get on the internet and pick a name out and they say, we're going to roll with this name. And they've never met anyone from that gang in LA. Um, so it's, that's a kind of interesting topic, but the way that really started was back in the eighties when, when the drug epidemic was really at its height and a lot of brothers in Los Angeles wanted to move out of L.A. To, to make money because it was the LAPD and the L.A. County Sheriff Department were getting smart about drug trafficking. And they decided, let's go to these smaller towns where the police are not as advanced. So that's where you get Bloods and Crips going to Phoenix, Arizona, Seattle, Portland, and then even moving further west over the years to just find markets to make money. Absolutely. Talk about snitch culture. Um, you heard, we've heard a lot about that in 2020 snitch this snitch that, um, talk about that in, in the gang culture. And, um, what do you, what do you think about that? Man, that, that's a real man. We could do, we could do a whole hour talking about snitching. <laughs> we literally can do a whole hour on what it means. How do we define it? Um, and, and the different categories, for example, you have informants, you have, you have confidential informants that flip. You have people who snitch on themselves. Hmm. Um, you have people who will actually think that they can out question two detectives. And then you have people that just break down and confess. Um, and then you have people that snitch in trials. Then you have people that just snitch in an interrogation room and never make it to trial. Then you have people that just snitch in a grand jury 
test grand jury testimony where there's no where there's no uh, where, where guilt or innocence is not decided. I mean, so you have all these different venues where you can tell or you could just talk to the cop in the alley in the back and, and give him information. Um, and I'm saying all of this because in my mind, all of this is informing. All of this is telling. All of this is snitching. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're pointing someone out in a jury or if you're just meeting a cop in the alley behind the liquor store. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's this is a very complex topic. And unfortunately, surprisingly, a lot of street cats don't understand the code. And these are people that's supposed to be more street than me, you know, but it's, it's a topic that that I deal with all the time because I, I consult defense attorneys on cases on a regular basis. And most of the time I'll tell a client that's trying to, you know, fighting for their life. I would tell the client that we wouldn't be in this predicament. If you, if you would have just kept your mouth shut when you got arrested, that's all you had to do was keep your mouth shut when you got arrested. But because you thought you could out question two seasoned detectives that they're trained to do this, um, you end up telling. And let me give you an example of of snitching that does that may not sound like snitching. Okay, so let's say I get arrested, and the cop is asking me about Tyrone. We, we where's Tyrone at, Alex? We, we we need to find Tyrone. I don't know where Tyrone is. I ain't seen Tyrone. I have no idea what he's doing. No, Alex, you, we, we we saw you with Tyrone the other day. We got pictures with you and Tyrone. Where's he at? I don't know, but his girlfriend's name is Sarah. Boom. I say his girlfriend's name is Sarah. It seems so innocent. It's not telling about any crime, right? Now they go get Sarah, and they put her in the interrogation room. Sarah, where's Tyrone? Oh, man, F that dude. I don't even talk to Tyrone no more. He's a cheater. Come on, Sarah. You know where he's at. We got him in your phone. Well, he's probably at his baby mama house. You know, what's, your, what's the baby mama name? Uh, her name is Teresa. Okay, now they go to Teresa. They pull her in. Teresa, where's Tyrone? Tyrone, I don't know, but he left a box of guns in the back of my house in the, in, and he dug them. They go there, they find the guns, they link those guns to the murders, and then they eventually get Tyrone. But how did they, how did they initially find Tyrone? It was through me innocently saying Sarah. That's why you keep your mouth shut. It doesn't matter how innocent you think that information is, it's always going to be used to the benefit of law enforcement. So did I snitch on Tyrone? Most people will say, nah, you didn't snitch on Tyrone. You just said his, he had a girl named Sarah. But that information led to finding guns, weapons, and all the stuff that they're going to use against them and send them away to prison forever. Give me the, give me the difference between a, um, an informant, a snitch, and a rat. Because it seems like there's different levels to this shit in 2020. I don't know if there is, according to street, when neither one of us are street um, or, or involved in street life. But uh, is there a difference between informant and rat? Well, it, they all kind of overlap each other. But an informant is someone that decides that they want to cooperate with the police and may not necessarily be under investigation. They may not have to do it, but they do it and they get paid to do it. So, for example... I'll give you a perfect example of informants here in Los Angeles. And they, the LAPD uses these informants and these informants are from the streets. So we have a, a thing here in LA called the, um, it's called a, uh, oh, it'll come to me in a second, but let's say someone gets arrested. They get arrested for a murder and they have, they have about 72 hours before they have to arraign you and send you to the LA County jail. In those 72 hours, they have you in a, a precinct. And what they do is they bring another person that you think is a prisoner. You actually think he's a prisoner, but he's not a prisoner. He looks like a prisoner. He's got paperwork like a prisoner. He's got a bracelet on like a prisoner. But he is what we would call an informant. He is going in that cell to spend the next 72 hours with you to extract any information he can about your case. And they and the LAPD are so slick about it because let's say, for example, the guy that was arrested is a blood. What they do is they get they have a list of these informants. They find their best blood informant, someone that could talk that blood talk and they put him in there. And he's equipped with a camera 
that's on his like clothing somewhere that you can't see. And he's got a mic. So all of this is recorded. And what that guy does is he talks to the youngster in the cell and says, hey, what you in here for? And he asks him, what set are you from? What gang are you from? And, and, and usually this informant is intimidating. Like you, you really believe this dude is from the streets and he's trying to get as much information. And unfortunately, the youngster ends up sharing everything that happened. Who got shot? Who had the gun? Where did the gun get taken? Everything. And it's all recorded. It's all documented. That dude that does that is a confidential informant. And uh, he gets paid to do that anywhere from five hundred dollars to five thousand dollars. They get paid. And these guys are from the streets. Wow. Damn. man. Now, if he comes to court and testifies, um, that takes him to another level. Sometimes that person doesn't have to come to court because the evidence is so overwhelming on that guy. He ends up taking a plea deal. He ends up taking like whatever years that they're offering, because if he goes to court and loses, he's going to get all day. So that confidential informant doesn't even have to worry about showing up in court. Damn. Yeah, I, I had a few friends that have been busted, you know, back in the past, like confidential button drug game, you know, saying, you know, set you up with a buyer and all that crazy situation. So, so how how do the um to these defense attorneys, how do they use you um in helping them? I should say. Well, what we do is we try to combat all the the strong points that the prosecution is going to do, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, almost every single case that that I've had, I'm talking about over 500 cases that the police perjure themselves. The police are willing to lie on the stand to get a conviction. And and most of the time, the defense attorney doesn't know when the police is lying, when they're telling the truth. Um, So I come in, that's where I come in and they might lie about the gang, a gang that I've been studying my whole life. You know, they might lie about how big the gang is, how many members the gang is, the history of the gang, the territory of the gang. Mm-hmm. And then and then we're able to just challenge the testimony of the police on almost every single thing they say, because basically in court, it's all a, it's a base. It's a credibility case. It's really their word against our word. And it's up to the jury to decide who they believe. And it, over the years, this job is getting really easy for me because. <laughs> the cops just come in there and, and they lie. Um, it's no other way around it. In fact, the LA times uncovered a whole bunch of lies that police have been doing. Um, in, in January of this year, the LA times did an article about cops putting people in gang databases that didn't deserve to be in there. So right. one of the, one, one example of a defense I do is I'll tell the jury, this guy's not even a gang member. So sometimes you get people prosecuted as gang members that aren't even gang members at all. And the LAPD will have what's called field interview cards where they fill it out and they put the gang, they put that he's a self-admitted gang member on the card. They'll say that they pulled him over one day and that he admitted to the cops that they were in a gang. And they have like five of these cards and they come on the stand and they, they are, they're asked like, well, how do you know he's in a gang? And they'll say, well, he admitted it to me. And I documented it on these cards. So they show those cards and juries mostly believe them. Now, I look at these cards and and 10 years ago, I have figured out these cards are are doctored. They're they're just writing anything they want on these cards. Mm-hmm. And I would actually testify that I don't believe in these cards. There's an inconsistency of how they're written. Um, there's multiple people writing on them. And it wasn't until body cams that we finding out that the cops are lying on these cards. Mm-hmm. Um so that's what, how the L.A. Times ended up doing this article that the LAPD were writing on these cards that people were in gangs that they weren't in. And the way that they they found out is through body cam. You, you see the cop talking to a kid and the kid is saying, I'm not in a gang. But at the same time, he's writing self-admitted gang member on the card. <laughs> but the, the kid just said he's not in a gang. So I've been telling the courts this for over a decade and I finally get vindicated in January of 2020. Um, Because I've had judges tell me, Alex, you're making some serious allegations here against police officers that they're lying on cards. And I'm saying that's exactly what they're doing. They're lying on these cards. But now we have footage of them lying on the cards. And unfortunately, we we never want to believe the people. 
We don't ever want to believe that the police are doing wrong until it's on camera. You know, if it ain't on camera, then the police aren't doing wrong. But that's how we found out that they're lying on these field interview cards. And for the last 10, 15 years, I've been challenging those field interview cards in court. Awesome. Dope. Um, we, I'm going to transition out of there a little bit and talk about COVID. We like to talk about what I guess how COVID and what it's meant to them. We see it kind of coming back now. I don't know if you know. Um, I know Joe Biden or President-elect Biden is talking about a plan that he may have a place of shutting down the country again to get it under control. There's a lot going on. How did COVID-19, when did you hear about it and how did it affect you? Uh, I heard about COVID-19 in late February when no one, no one in, uh, I guess no one in the United States was taking it serious. At least no one in Los Angeles was taking it serious. Uh, yeah. Late late February, I heard about it through just media reports and and what China was doing in, in those labs in Wuhan. Um, th- this has been going on for years. These these laboratories are always developing what, what I call uh, biological weapons, uh, biological warfare. And uh, it's something that I actually studied years ago. But yeah, I heard about it in February, and I don't think we started taking it serious until March 11th. I remember that day because I was doing the podcast. I was doing the Gangster Chronicles podcast. It was actually the last episode that I did on March 11th, and that was the day that the NBA, when the NBA announced they were shutting down, I think that's when everyone started to take it serious. And I thought it was ironic that the no government agencies had shut down <laughs> the NBA, which is a private business. They are the first ones to shut down. Um, and then everyone else started to follow. Uh, but I think the first city to shut down was San Francisco. I don't know the date on that. Uh, Mayor London breed shut down San Francisco, I believe before any other city shut down. And, you know, then we started taking it serious back in March. Right. And let's talk about that because you mentioned something big there, uh, the Gangster Chronicles. Um, I've seen a few of your interviews where you were talking about you guys, you were doing the show, you was on the show, everything was cool. And then, you know, at the time of the COVID break, the studio was shut down. You pretty much didn't want to do, you know, um, the uh, online interviews. You wanted to wait till you got back to the studio. When the studio opened back up, you weren't, you know, invited back to the studio. Could you get into what happened to your powerful show, Gangster Chronicles? Yeah, uh, that's pretty much that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Uh, March 11th, we recorded our last episode in the studio. And then I think about a month went by. There were no episodes. There were no episodes for the rest of March and for the beginning of April. And at that time, they were trying to figure out what to do. And they wanted to do some zooms, some I guess something like what we're doing right here. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't really my style. <laughs> Zooms, Zooms aren't really my style. Um, and I, I didn't really want to want to do the Zooms. And then when the studio opened back up in June, I believe June 5th, I think mm-hmm. June 5th, they did their first episode. And I, I didn't, I found out because it was online. And, and mm-hmm. I guess he made a decision uh, not to call me and bring me back. But I think that decision had to do with some other things that um, it was my opinion that that the guy wanted to host the show. Uh, Norman Steele wanted to be a host. And I think he started to do the hosting during during COVID and and enjoyed it. He enjoyed the hosting and probably got that, you know, that bug that they say, you know, that entertainment bug. And he decided to to host it. And once I saw that he had no interest in bringing me back on the show, I I just didn't do any more communication with him anymore. And that was pretty much it. And then I later find out that he wanted to keep that seat because they were they had a deal or they were trying to trying to develop a deal. And the deal would have been more advantageous to him if he was one of the hosts and the producer, as opposed to being a, a producer and then having another host. So I think it was also a financial move as well. You know, the chemistry between you, Reggie Wright, and Mob James, I think is what kind of brought that show to life. 
um, you being that, that, that narrator, that was just kind of that perfect point guard between the stories of the gangster and mob James and the police in Reggie, Wright. Uh, yeah, Reggie, Wright. Excuse me. Um, talk about the, the creation of that show, if you don't mind and talk about how much influence you had in the beginning during its, its, its heyday, so to speak. Well, the show was initially developed by, by Reggie Wright Jr. and Norman Steele. Uh, they were throwing some names around of show titles. And initially they wanted to do a show called the Death Row Chronicles because Reggie Wright has a lot of death row history, being that he was the, uh, the head of security and he was CEO for a while. And also Mob James has a lot of death row history, being that you know he grew up with Suge and was on the payroll at death row. But I think that according to Reggie, he didn't really like that title. And then they threw around other titles. And I don't know if Reggie came up with it or if Norman came up with it, but maybe simultaneously they came up with the Gangster Chronicle title. And they started doing it with with Mob James and Reggie Wright Jr. This is I wasn't even a part of the show at that time. They did two episodes. And then at some point they came to the realization they needed a third person Mm -hmm. uh, to get the conversation going good between James and Reggie Wright. And. I think they brought in Bosco for one episode and for whatever reason it didn't work out. And then Norman Steele and and I have a mutual friend and a girl named Nicole Ballin. And I believe Nicole Ballin had recommended me. And then that's when Norman called me and I agreed to do the show. And I came in on episode three, sort of like just a test to see how it would go. And like, as soon as the episode was over, he was like, hey, you you the guy to do it. <laughs> so episode four is where the structure of the show starts to develop, where it's, you know, we, we actually have topics. We actually have conversation points. And episode four, I would bring in a script. I would tell Reggie and, and James, hey, these are the these are eight topics that are hot right now. Which ones you guys want to talk about? Because all we need is like three, three or four topics and we, we could talk for an hour right. and and they would decide on which ones that they wanted to talk about. And, and we would go on those. Uh, sometimes we would talk on the phone ahead of time and other times we just do it through text. And I had a I had a, a structure to the show. Um, every episode, you knew what it was going to be. And that was the structure. It wasn't really interview based. We did some interviews on once in a while. But for the most part, it was just the conversation of us three. Now, um, did you have any contractual obligations when you started that that will prohibit, you know, somebody from just taking you out of your seat, you know, or, or and or you, you know, taking legal action for being moved out of that seat abruptly? Well, I never signed any contracts. Uh, there was one contract that was presented to me. And I looked over it and I had told Norman that I wasn't going to sign this contract. We could rewrite this contract in another way. And uh, we never got to that point. You know, he always just said, you know, trust me, trust me. Everything's cool. I said, all right, I'll trust you, but I'm not I'm not going to sign this uh, because it will it will bind me into something that I don't agree with. Uh, I I believe Reggie, (laughs) I think Reggie and James signed theirs because they just they go with the flow. And me being more studious was not going to sign that. So but that doesn't preclude me from taking any legal actions Um, at this time. uh, I haven't decided what I'm going to do. Uh, I've spoke to a couple of people and, you know, I've been involved in lawsuits before and they're very stressful. Yeah. Uh, And and actually, every lawsuit that I've ever been involved in, I've won. (laughs) I've won every lawsuit. So I have a pretty good track record with with lawsuits um, and I've been sued and I've won. I've won where where people tried to sue me and they lost. So, um, you know, I have a, a good legal team and I've been in the courts. The, the courts are not new to me. I, I'm a landlord. I've been sued by tenants. Right. I've had to sue tenants. Uh, I've been sued in all kind of ways. So I haven't even thought about what I'm going to do about it. But it was a little I felt it was a little shady that. Now the show got a deal with 
with Charlemagne, Black Effect Network, and iHeart. And most of the show's deal was based on the numbers that Reggie Wright, myself, and James did. Um, the show didn't really do any numbers during COVID, so it was definitely based on on my work, partially my work. So we'll see. Were you ever paid any uh, monies from YouTube or anything else that you guys uh, did in the other ventures, like podcast ads or anything? Yeah, there was a little bit of that. Uh, okay. I believe in August. I believe in August. Uh, the, the show started in April of 2019. And by August, we had decided to let's start doing some videos. And we started doing videos and he started posting the videos on on his uh, digital soapbox network. And the numbers were going through the roof when, <laughs> once he started posting Gangster Chronicles videos on there. And there was there was some money. Only one time was I shown the uh, the analytics of it. Uh, the other times it, they would just give me the money and I have to just believe that this is this was my portion. This is my share. You know, I just I trusted the dude. And and then eventually he, he stopped. He stopped putting those uh, those amounts in my bank account, I guess, when he decided he didn't want me to be on the show anymore. Reggie Wright Jr., currently behind bars. Um, have you spoken to Reggie Wright since he's been locked up? And how, how do you feel about that? Well, Reggie Wright Jr. is actually free right now. He got out last week. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, okay. So, he's home. He's home. He's currently in a halfway house, and he's going to be in a halfway house for about a month or so. Okay. And him and I have spoke about reuniting and, and doing a show. And we're just in the uh, pre-production part of that. We're trying to figure out who might be a third person that that could uh, be a good good match for us too, and I, I feel pretty strong that him and I will probably do a show. It's not in concrete yet, but we've talked about it, and and I've stayed in touch with him while he was in prison, and we talked about this right before he got out of prison. So so we'll see we'll see if we will start doing it. I'm actually building a, a podcast studio to my left over here and oh. and i'm gonna have i'm gonna have everything that is needed to to shoot a podcast and to do it you know high high production high quality so i'll have all those capabilities real soon so is it safe to say he's done with gangster chronicles too no more no more that for reggie i i think it's safe to say but you never know that you know, Norman can pull him back in. <laughs> he might be able to pull him back in because Reggie Wright is might be willing to work with him because Reggie Wright is is going to always say positive things about the Gangster Chronicles because right. James McDonald is a good friend of his and they grew right. up together. Okay, uh, but you know, behind behind the cameras and behind closed doors, him and I have a different type of conversation about it. But I, I don't know if he's completely done with it. But we'll we'll find out. Gotcha. Appreciate the insight. Definitely. Um, could he talk a little bit, man? But he's got a couple more questions for you. Definitely appreciate you staying with us for almost an hour about your uh street TV um channel and uh streetgang.com. The the uh, started that too. Well, the streetgangs.com was the website that I created uh I wanna say 1995 but i didn't actually get that url till 98 but the streetgangs.com website was on a university server first as a project this was uh let's say spring of 1995 i was taking this class and at, at usc and it was about the internet now you got to remember in 1995 no one knew what the internet was Mm-hmm. So, so I had this I had this professor that was telling us that the Internet is going to change the world and and you have to learn about the Web and all these things. And it was a small class. It was like 10 of us in this class. And we're all looking at each other like, what is this professor talking about? So one of the assignments was to create a website. And in the fall of 1995, I decided, all right, I'm going to create a website. It's going to be about street gangs. And I think my first website was just listing some of the gangs that were active in L.A. And, you know, just some basic things. And even though the Internet audience was really small in 1995, 
the the little page that I created kind of just it got hits, like lots of hits. It was getting thousands of hits. Mm. And and it got to the point where the university had told me, you know, you can create your own, get your own server. Your 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 page is getting too many hits on this server. Uh-huh. So that's when I bought streetgangs.com, the domain name in ninety eight. Dope. Um, are you familiar with um what's her name? Tyra Farrell, the old the uh former actress, she was in White Man Can Drum, Boys in the Hood. And her her husband Don Jackson and what they've done in in the city of Los Angeles. We had them on a couple of weeks ago, and they they were giving us incredible insight. When you were talking about what you dealt with with the police and and them writing up false cards, it made me think about them. Um, do are you familiar with their work at all? Was he a former cop? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Um, he actually set the he set the police up and had, and videotaped. I believe if that's the dude, um, videotaped. Yep, the Long Beach, the Long Beach Police Department th- putting his head through a glass window. Yep, that was him. Oh yeah, yeah man. Was- I never met the brother, but I, I've known his story for many years. Man, that was like twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and you know that that was like right after Rodney King, I believe. Dope. Um, one more question I got back in during um your days of days gangster chronicle. Excuse me, Reggie Wright used to talk about Snoop being a snitch. Is Snoop a snitch in your opinion? Would that fall into snitch? category uh unfortunately um you know i'm a big fan of snoop uh i respect his his career but he, he did run to the police with daz and he did tell them some things that were criminal matters i mean that's you know my dad taught me early on that that's telling <laughs> that's telling yeah. and uh unfortunately that would fall into the category of snitching now of course People that will come to his defense will say, well, he didn't go to court. He didn't tell on anyone in a trial. But, you know, there's like we said earlier, there's different levels to this. There's different levels. And, you know, I'm teaching my kids the same thing. I'm teaching my kids the same thing that that when when they get into an argument and they're fighting over something, I don't want them to run to me to tell me about what the other guy did to them. Right. I, I want them to figure it out. Figure it out diplomatically because you guys are becoming little snitches right now (laughs) and you guys can figure out a way how to share the computer or share that laptop or agree on watching a show. And, you know, that's the way I was taught, you know, ever since ever since playing playing in a sandbox, I was told that tattletaling was wrong. You don't tattletale, you know, and, and, and we could look at this as different levels because as a five year old kid, you're a tattletale, mm-hmm. you know, as a street cat, you become a snitch and an informant. Mm-hmm. Um, but then even on, on higher levels of, of corporate America, you have what's called whistleblowers. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like like Snowden. If yep. you're familiar with Snowden, yep. Snowden exposed the whole government's um, monitoring of of our personal lives and to a certain level Snowden is telling, you know, and Snowden, all Snowden did was tell us what we already knew and look at Snowden. Now he can't even come to America. He's been banished into another country. And if he had a family and have kids, look at the damage he would have done. Now I think the information that Snowden put out there is really important. No doubt about it, but telling, look what telling done got you. You're stuck in another country. Yeah. The, the minute you step foot in the United States, you're going to prison and you didn't tell us anything that we didn't already know. You could have just came to me, America. I could tell you all about surveillance uh, without, you know, exposing government security issues. Right. I don't know. Now I, you had to see T.I. T.I. has been answering this question. No paperwork, but the Crime Stoppers video haunts T.I. to this day. Is that considered a snitch in your opinion? The crime you're talking about the Crime Stoppers video just in it of itself. Yes, mm, I think I look at that as a PSA that he did. Um, <laughs> it, it's not necessarily linked to any person or anybody. I might have to look at it again, but I will say say that when Ti testified in that court trial, yep. he told too much information, yep. and in, in the way I grew up, that's snitching. So I would say what he said in that court is definitely snitching. You know, whenever you answer a question like what kind of gun that they had or how many shots were fired, how many shots were fired? You might think to yourself, oh, he just said that how many shots were fired. They already knew 
But at that time, you don't know what they know. You don't know if you saying that they shot seven times is going to help them link some other information together. So, yeah, he told in that trial. No doubt about it. Did, did you get a chance to see MC8 situation where people was coming out calling him a rat? And then everybody, you know, they kind of defended him as well, saying um, he didn't. But it was a situation, like you said, it may not have been like in the trial, but a piece of information that you gave to law enforcement helped in their investigation. Hey, all of that comes comes under the umbrella of telling. I think that he told he answered questions in a grand jury where the defendants are not present. And in grand juries, innocent or guilt is not being determined. So you might feel like this is not really telling. But if you're in a grand jury situation and the prosecutor is asking you questions and you're answering those questions, you're telling. I mean, there's just I don't, there's no way around it. You know, like I just recently interviewed a, a Mexican cartel hitman and I posted a couple of those videos on my street TV channel. But then I also took more of that and put it into a pot, my podcast, the street TV podcast. And I asked the dude a question about him. Eventually he told he admitted to committing eight murders as a a hitman for the Ariano Felix cartel. And in the interview, I asked him about becoming a snitch. And Mm -hmm. I I, I actually used the word informant. I said, you became an informant. And then he said, he said, Alex, I just want to correct you. I was never an informant, but I was a cooperating witness. Okay, so that's another one that you could put on your list. Cooperating witness. So you got rat, snitch, informants, confidential informants, cooperating witnesses. Uh, It all falls under the same umbrella, man. All same box. I appreciate you keeping it real because a lot of people, you know, come with a lot of different ways to get out of that. I just appreciate you keeping it real. You know what I mean? For that. Definitely. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people are not sticking to the code anymore. And a lot of people said that there is no more code. There is no code. Uh, but th- there's definitely a code for yourself. If, any, if you can save anybody, you can save yourself. And if you ever get caught in a situation where you're in an interrogation room, keep your mouth shut. That's the only way you're going to win. There's no way of even answering the most innocent of questions. It's mm-hmm. going to come back to haunt you. Uh, any little thing that you say is going to come back and it's not going to help you. So, yeah, you got to if you're not if you don't believe in the street code anymore, at least you can save yourself. Absolutely. Mr. Alonzo, we definitely appreciate your time over an hour on yes, the podcast. Yes, yes. Hip Hop and Sense of Podcast. Powerful interview. If you don't mind real quick, drop your social media handles. And before we conclude this interview or after we conclude this interview, stick it around because we got some things to talk about off camera. Film. OK, well, yeah, you can find me on streetgangs.com streettv.net and on all social media platforms at Alex Alonso 101 that's Alex Alonso spelled with an S 101 and uh, thanks for having me pleasure is all ours definitely on the Hip Hop Uncensored podcast this afternoon Alex Alonso in the building salute brother thank you